Matthew chapter 5, we're looking at the Beatitudes here. Today we come to the fourth Beatitude, the fourth attitude that ought to be in us, fourth element of true saving faith. Coming from Matthew 5, verse 6, Matthew 5, verse 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. One of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis. Uh, and when I was a child, I read the Chronicles of Narnia, which I thoroughly enjoyed, and even today I still enjoy reading them to my own children. One of the books in the series of Chronicles of Narnia called The Silver Chair, there's a girl named Jill, and she ends up having a conversation with the lion, which is kind of strange if you don't understand what's going on, but the lion, of course, is Aslan. And Aslan is uh, C.S. Lewis's, uh, you know, in, in a child sort of way, version of Jesus Christ. So if you know those books, C.S. Lewis often taking the Bible and, and kind of putting it into kid language, so to speak. So here's this conversation between Aslan, who represents Jesus Christ, and this girl named Jill. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. As Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no such promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step closer to the lion. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up consumed girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. The lion said, there is no other stream. This fictional story is really played out in the Bible. Of course, Jesus Christ is the one whom we must come to. The lion represents Jesus Christ, and of course, he wasn't about to kill Jill. But this girl, Jill, was, was thirsting after the water. She needed the water, but she was afraid of the lion. Many people in our world are like that. They, they need Jesus Christ. They're the ones whom they're really thirsting after, but they're afraid to come to Him. Well, that story, the lion represented Jesus Christ, and He is the one whom we must thirst for because the Bible says, and Jesus Himself said, He is the living water. And when we drink of Him, we will never thirst again. In Matthew 5, 6, Jesus calls us to hunger and thirst for His righteousness. And this attitude 
is following logically in, in, in a progression here. Okay, These aren't just haphazardly things that Jesus is throwing out in a sermon. There was, there was a progression here. The first three are essential, essentially negative commands when you look at them. Uh, if you think about it this way, I mean, we're to forsake evil things, these evil things that are barriers to the kingdom of heaven. We see in the first one, poverty of spirit. We're turning away from our own self-seeking. When we mourn, we're turning away from self-satisfaction. And in meekness, we turn away from self-serving. So as you can see, we're really our greatest problem, aren't we? The first three beatitudes are costly, and in many ways they're painful. Becoming poor in spirit involves death to self. Mourning over sin involves facing up to our sinfulness. Becoming meek involves surrendering our power to God's control. It's painful. It's costly. Well, praise the Lord, as we come to the fourth element of true saving faith here, this fourth attitude that ought to be in us, it's more positive. It's a consequence of those other three, really. When you see, here, here's how, here, you think about it progressively, here's how it goes. When we put aside ourselves, we put aside sin and, and the power, our, our power, and we turn to the Lord, we are given a great desire for righteousness. The unbeliever doesn't desire righteousness. The unbeliever loves darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil, Jesus said. By the way, I, I myself have found this to be true in my own life as well as the more I actually, of myself, that I put aside and the things of this world, the more I long for what God has. The more I long for heaven. The more I long for Jesus Christ to satisfy my longings. The English preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, quote, This beatitude again follows logically from the previous ones. It is a statement to which all the others lead. It is the logical conclusion to which they come, and it is something for which we should all be profoundly thankful and grateful to God. I do not know of a better test that anyone can apply to himself or herself in this whole matter of the Christian profession than a verse like this. If this verse is to you one of the most blessed statements of the whole of Scripture, you can be quite certain you are a Christian. If it is not, then you had better examine the foundations again. End quote. Martin Lloyd-Jones wasn't the only one who said this. Pastor John MacArthur said this, quote, The person who has no hunger and thirst for righteousness has no part in God's kingdom. To have God's life within us through the new birth in Jesus Christ is to desire more of His likeness within us by growing in righteousness, end quote. So we see in Matthew 5, 6, it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So we must ask the question then, what does it mean to hunger and thirst? Have any of you ever faced a life-threatening situation where you were so hungry and so thirsty where you thought, man, if I don't get something to eat soon or something to drink quickly, I'm going to die. Any of you, by any chance? No? That usually doesn't happen to us here in New Zealand. We tend to think of hunger, and, and my own children even talk this way, man, I'm starving. 
Really? How long ago did you eat? Two hours ago. I'm starving. Yeah, we, we tend to think of hunger as, you know, you, you miss a meal, right? Oh, that's really starving. Or, you know, thirsting, you, know, you have to wait an hour on a hot day to get a cold drink. Oh, that's really thirsty. But the hunger and thirst of which Jesus is speaking here is, is, is much more intense than just missing a meal or going an hour on a hot day without a drink. The strongest and the deepest impulses in the natural realm are used to represent the depth of desire that Christians are to have for righteousness. These are strong desires. When someone is, has gone days without water or weeks without food, they're incredibly strong desires. That's what we're talking about here. And it's interestingly enough that the words, if you look them up in the Greek, the words hunger and thirst here are in the present tense, which means they're continuous, signifying continuous longing, continuous seeking after righteousness, not just a one-time thing. And so if you've truly come to Christ, then you came hungering and thirsting for a righteousness which you do not have. You don't have righteousness. In fact, the Bible says the best you you have is like filthy rags. And so after you came to Christ, then you're going to continue to seek this kind of righteousness. You can't live right without Christ either, even as a believer. In other words, this all-consuming desire for righteousness is to characterize our life now, and guess what, even after a believer, even, even into the rest of our earthly existence. This is something we see throughout Scripture, not just here in Matthew 5. For example, we need to be like David in Psalm 63, verse 1. David is out in the wilderness of Judea there, and he said, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. The Apostle Paul was that way as well. We should be like Paul. Paul was a man, remember he had great visions. God used him to write most of the of the New Testament. So he had these great revelations from God, but the Bible says, and Paul himself said, he was not satisfied with that. He had given up his own righteousness and he was growing in Christ's righteousness, but he said he wanted more. You ever felt that way? You ever felt like Paul said here in Philippians 3, verse 9, he said, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings being made like him in his death. You ever felt like that? Well, David and Paul weren't the only ones. Peter counseled those to whom he wrote. Look what he said. He said in 2 Peter 3, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter was a man who knew Christ intimately, didn't he? He knew where people should look. John Darby wrote this, quote, To be hungry is not enough. I must be really starving to know what is in God's heart toward me. When the prodigal son was hungry, he went to feed on the husk. But when he was starving, he turned to his father. End quote. Of course, the father there represents God the Father. 
So that gives you an idea of what it means to hunger and thirst. Number two, what are we to hunger and thirst for? All right, we're to have this really incredibly strong desire, but what what should that desire, what should be the object of the desire? Well, as with the other Beatitudes, I'll remind you that the goal is twofold. For the unbeliever, the goal is salvation. For the believer, the goal is sanctification. Sanctification means you and I are being set apart from our sin. That's the negative, but the positive is we are set apart to God. Let's think about these individually. Number one, we are to hunger and thirst for salvation. We are to hunger and thirst for salvation. Even even we as believers, by the way, should do this. When a person initially hungers and thirsts for righteousness, he seeks salvation. That's what he's after. This individual will experience all of these first four beatitudes, these elements of true saving faith. And so in poverty of spirit, this person's going to see his sin. In mourning, he will then lament and mourn and then turn from his sin. He will repent of his sin. In meekness, he will submit his sinful way and his power to God. He will give up his power, if you will. And in hungering and thirsting, he seeks God's righteousness in Christ to replace his sin. That's what happens in justification. God the Father replaces your sin with Christ's righteousness. Well, there's many Old Testament passages where you could actually see how righteousness is used as a synonym of salvation. Let me just give you one example here. In Isaiah 51, verse 5, it says, My righteousness is near, and then the the synonyms used in the next phrase, My salvation is gone forth. Do Do you see the parallel there? I hope you do. Well, we're to hunger and thirst for salvation. Sadly, this was, for the Jews, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, obstacle to receiving the gospel was actually their self-righteousness, particularly the Sadducees, the scribes, and the Pharisees. Their self-righteousness was their greatest barrier between them and God. They had confidence in their own purity and in their own holiness which sadly they imagined was actually, uh, you know, that they, they saw that as a good thing. They thought they were creating these good works. And so because they were God's chosen race, uh, they thought they were the keepers of God's law, they felt assured of going to heaven because of that. They were trusting in themselves. However, when Jesus Christ came, <laughs> he didn't agree with them, did he? The Messiah told them that the only way to salvation was actually by hungering and thirsting for God's righteousness. And God's righteousness, therefore, had to replace their own self-righteousness. If you trust in your own righteousness, you cannot get to God. You cannot get to heaven. So we're to hunger and thirst for salvation. But number two, we're to hunger and thirst for sanctification. This, which is, of course, being set apart from our sin unto God. It's a process. And you and I will, if you're a believer, will continue in this process. You're never going to arrive in this life. But praise God, there's coming a day, the Bible says, when you see Jesus, you will be made like Him because you see Him as He is. The day's coming. So for Christians, 
the object of our hungering and thirsting is to grow in the righteousness received from trusting in Christ. And that growth is, as we see here, called sanctification. And sanctification, again, I'll remind you, is, is when a Christian is continually being set apart from sin to God. There's, there's the negative and the positive aspect involved there. It's both. And it's one of the clearest marks of a Christian. You want to know how you, you're a Christian? One of the ways you know you're a Christian is when you're being set apart from sin to God, when you're growing. If you're not growing, then you're not alive. And if you're not alive, that means you're dead. You're not abiding in the vine, who of course is Jesus. Well, let me make sure that we're all understanding an important truth here, because no believer arrives in this life. You will not arrive in in your spiritual life until you reach heaven, when God glorifies you. No one can actually claim perfection. There, there have been people who, who've claimed that and, and have thought and taught that you can arrive in this life. You can be sinless and perfect in this life. That's just simply not true. And if you, and if anybody thinks that, then they're deceived. First John made that quite clear, right? They're deceived if they think they have no sin. Well, one commentator wrote this. It's on the screen. Quote, In the Greek language, verbs such as hunger and thirst normally have objects that indicate incompleteness or partialness. The idea is that a person only hungers for some food and some water, not for all the food and water in the world. But Jesus does not here use that object. And righteousness is therefore the unqualified and unlimited object of hunger and thirst. The Lord identifies those who desire all the righteousness there is, end quote. In other words, they're, they're hungering and thirsting for Christ's righteousness. Well, another interesting point we need to make as we think about this precious verse, and it actually can be learned as you study the Greek, is that Jesus here uses in Matthew 5, 6 a, a definite article. And by, by that, he's indicating that He's not speaking of just any righteousness. But Jesus is talking about the righteousness, the only righteousness, the only true righteousness. So he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for the righteousness. You could actually insert the word the, because in the Greek there's a definite article there. obvious bottom line that needs to be pointed out is this. We cannot possibly have our longing for godliness satisfied in this life then, can we? Because we're never going to arrive in this life. We're we're left then to continually hunger and, and thirst for a day that is yet to come when you and I will be entirely clothed in Christ's righteousness. We will be made like Him. Well, the third question we need to ask is, is it really necessary to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Is that really necessary? I mean, do we have to do what Jesus talks about here? And the answer is yes. Jesus declared that the deepest desire of every person is to hunger and thirst for righteousness. That is the Spirit-prompted desire that's actually going to lead you to salvation. It's going to keep you strong and faithful once you are actually in the kingdom. 
By the way, it's the only ambition that when fulfilled brings enduring happiness. Because people who hunger after food and thirst for water, when they get the water, they're not satisfied, are they? When they get nice food, they're not satisfied, are they? A couple hours later, you're thirsty again. A couple hours later, you're hungry again. They're not ultimately satisfied. The only way we can ultimately be satisfied is in Jesus Christ. Again, one commentator said this, quote on the screen here for you, Hunger and thirst represents the necessities of physical life. Jesus' analogy demonstrates that righteousness is required for spiritual life just as food and water are required for physical life. Righteousness is not an optional spiritual supplement, but a spiritual necessity. We can no more live spiritually without righteousness than we can live physically without food and water. End quote. Which do you think is more important? We know that food and water are important, but do you see the spiritual importance as well? Well, the heart of every person in the world, guess what? Was created with a sense of inner emptiness and need. God created us that way. He's the creator. He made us in this way that only He is the one who can satisfy us. So apart from God's revelation, we're never going to recognize what the need is or what will satisfy us. If God doesn't intervene in our lives and show us who He is, and well, we're not, we don't have any hope then, do we? The reason is, is that we have forsaken God. Our problem is, as unbelievers, the Bible says we don't seek God. We've really done what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 2.13. Look at this interesting verse on the screen. God said, for my people have committed two evils. Here's the two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. By the way, we do the same thing, okay? Don't criticize Israel for doing that and sit around thinking, man, I'm glad I'm not like them. No, you are like them. That's the point. We have done the same. God created us with a need for Himself. Instead, we often try to satisfy our need through lifeless, small-g gods, don't we? These small-g gods are often of our own making, uh, of our own seeking. We, we, try to, we try to find our satisfaction and pleasure in, in things of this world, which will never satisfy. Which is why people continually do them, continually spend money on those those things. And in the end, they're still not satisfied. Number four, what is the result of this hunger and thirst? What is the result? Well, look at Matthew 5, 6. Matthew 5, 6 says, For they shall be filled. You see a funny picture on the screen, don't you? I like that one. One of the reasons I put that on the screen is because the Greek word in Matthew 5, 6, they shall be filled, was frequently used of feeding animals. And these feeding animals would keep feeding until they wanted nothing more. They're satisfied. You can stick a 
you know, a yummy steak in front of a dog, and, and if the dog's stomach is so full it can't eat anymore, it won't eat the yummy steak. It's full. It's satisfied. They were allowed to eat until they were completely satisfied. That's the idea here. They're filled all the way up. There's no room for anything else. So Jesus' divine pronouncement is that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be given total satisfaction. Total. By the way, the giving of satisfaction is God's work, not yours. It's God's work. He's the one who's ultimately going to satisfy. He will ultimately come in the future, by the way, and accomplish this purpose. Why? Notice, you say, why, why do I say this is something in the future? Well, if you look at Matthew 5, 6, you, you may not necessarily get the idea. It says, for they shall be filled. Maybe you do, maybe you get it. The idea there, shall be filled, is, is it's future tense. Future tense. It's not going to happen in this life, per se. So our part of the equation then is to do what? Our part is to seek. God's part is to do the satisfying. And he's ultimately going to satisfy us with himself in heaven. Well, that's an interesting paradox, isn't it? You know what a paradox is, right? Two things that, that you know, that, that seem opposite, but they're not really. The, the, so the person who genuinely hungers and thirsts for God's righteousness finds it so satisfying that he actually wants more and more of that. Do you? Do you want more? Well, there's a theme in the Bible I want you to see. And the theme is this, that God satisfies those who seek and love Him. God will not satisfy if you try to fill yourself up and quench your thirst in the things of this world. He will not satisfy you. He's going to leave you to your own sinful desires. Well, look, look at, I've given you just three verses on the screen here. Psalm 107. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Psalm 34, verse 10. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Do you believe that? I hope you do. If you don't want to want, you need to make the Lord your shepherd. And notice what Jesus told the Samaritan woman when he, he had this divine appointment at the well there. John 4, Jesus said, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again, or will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Many of those who had been uh, among the 5,000 that Jesus had fed with the five loaves and the two fish, heard Jesus say these words in John chapter 6. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You say, well, how do I know if I'm uh, hungering and thirsting after righteousness? Are, are there any signs that visible signs that are, that are obvious, that will help me to know? You say, what are these signs of spiritual hunger and thirst? That's a good question. Number one, you will be poor in spirit. 
That's the first element of true saving faith. You can't get to the fourth one without the first one. You'll be poor in spirit. Now don't forget, as, as I've been trying to explain, there's a progression going on in these Beatitudes. Now let me ask you a series of questions I think will reveal whether or not you are spiritually bankrupt. Because that's the idea. To be poor in spirit means you're spiritually bankrupt. You're, you're, you're coming to God empty-handed. You have nothing to offer Him except your sin. But here's some questions to think about. Do you fear the greatness of God? Do you feel totally insignificant and worthless? Do you feel no one can ever say anything about you as low as you really are? I have to remind myself of that one because I've had people say nasty things about me and that, that's, that's hard to deal with whenever... Somebody stabs you in the back, so to speak, slanders you, or gossips about you. It's hard to deal with, isn't it? But I have to remind myself, none of those people have ever hurt me with their words, have ever said anything as bad as what reality actually is. Because <laughs> I'm the worst sinner I know. I know myself better than, than anybody else knows me. Well, except God. So first of all, we need to be poor in spirit. Number two, you will be mournful. Does your heart break over your own condition? Do you, do you see that you're a sinner? By the way, you're a sinner by birth and by choice, both. Do you feel great concern and heaviness for the needs of others? Does the world around you concern you at all? You just kind of go on your merry way thinking of yourself and only yourself. You will be mournful. Number, number three, you will be meek. You will be meek. You will have power under control. Do you seek to get even with those who oppose you? <laughs> Is that your attitude? I'm, I'm, I get even. What do you do when someone attacks you? Are you, are you meek? Is your power under control? You're meek, that's a sign of spiritual hunger and thirst. Number four, you'll have a dissatisfaction with self. You're not going to be satisfied with the way you are. You'll be like the Apostle Paul. If you're pleased with your own righteousness, then you're not going to see a need for God's righteousness then, are you? In order to have a, a Savior, you need to recognize that you have a need, right? You're not going to get saved... The Savior won't save you until you recognize you have, have to be saved to begin with. Thomas Watson wrote this, quote, None so empty of grace as he that thinks he is full. He has most need of righteousness that least wants it. End quote. <laughs> One of our greatest problems is our pride, our self-righteousness that blocks us from the thing that, that we need the most. So if you're truly hungering and thirsting, then you're going to say as the Apostle Paul did in Romans chapter 7, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Number five, you will not be dependent on external things for satisfaction. External things will not satisfy. Again, I like what Thomas Watson said, quote, Hunger is satisfied with nothing but food. 
bringing a hungry man flowers and music, tell him pleasant stories, nothing will content him but food. So a man that hungers and thirsts after righteousness says, give me Christ or I die. End quote. That's good. (laughs) A starving man can't be satisfied by an arrangement of lovely flowers, can he? What's he going to do, eat the flowers? (laughs) Probably not. That's not going to satisfy him. Why why bring a starving guy flowers? What he needs is food, right? A thirsty man is not going to be satisfied by playing him beautiful music. He's still going to be thirsty. As beautiful as it is, it's, it's not what he needs. Well, the same with us. We can't be satisfied except by God's own righteousness. We must hunger and thirst for God's righteousness. That's what we need. We, we go around this world trying to satisfy ourselves with anything other than God's righteousness. We're, we're, it's, we don't need it. We're never going to be satisfied by it. Number six, you will avoid everything opposed to righteousness. You will be opposed to everything that is opposed. You're going to avoid everything opposed to righteousness. Do you seek to do this? That's the question. Do you seek to do that? Now, there's certain things in life that we know are bad. Things that we know are harmful, for example. Things we know are sin. I hope we're avoiding those things. Do we avoid those? Do you avoid those things? Number seven, you will avoid anything that tends to dull your spiritual appetite. There's many things that are harmful in themselves. However, those same things can actually cause us to lose our spiritual appetite so that you and I will actually no longer hunger. It's a bit like eating some junk food before dinner. You can have a a wonderful dinner set before you. I mean, you know, a yummy pizza or a a lovely roast of lamb and and some some potatoes and and a salad and all the other nice things put before you. A wonderful feast. But if if you've pigged out on junk food, you come to the dinner and you think, man, I don't really feel like eating. Why? (laughs) Put something else in his place. Avoid those things that tend to dull your spiritual appetite. You ask, well, what kind of things might those be? Well, I mean, it could be anything. It could be sports, cars, jobs, hobbies. Uh, It could even be your spouse, your children, grandchildren, okay? Those things aren't going to satisfy you. We can spoil our physical appetite with junk food. Well, guess what? It's the same in the spiritual sense. We can spoil our spiritual hunger with junk food as well. We can stuff our time with so many unnecessary activities, we actually will actually lose our spiritual appetites in the process. Too many people are distracted. They don't think they have time to come to church. They don't think they have time to read their Bibles. Many people don't, don't think they have time to listen to a sermon on an MP3 player or on their computer. They've stuffed their lives so full of many unnecessary activities, they've actually lost their spiritual appetite in the process. They're not hungering and thirsting after righteousness. You say, well, if I've done that, what do I do? (laughs) Avoid anything that tends to dull your spiritual appetite then. Right? It's that easy. Number eight, you will be faithful in church. 
kind of goes with number seven. When, whenever church services are held, let me ask you the question, where are you? You need to be in church. Whenever there's church services, that includes the midweek services, by the way, on Thursday nights, you need to be there. When we have men's retreats, ladies' retreats, ladies' Bible studies, men's Bible studies, or, uh, or uh, you know, teen camps, or uh, we have conventions, or, or uh, Bible uh, conferences, or whatever, where are you? Somebody who's hungering and thirsting after righteousness goes to those sort of things. They're there. They're, they, they want to be satisfied by God. Hungry people are always found near the table, aren't they? They just kind of park out there and live there. Number nine, you will pray for righteousness. You're going to pray for righteousness. because Why? Because God is the only one who can give us righteousness. So are you asking Him for it? If you want it, you need to ask Him for it. And number 10, you'll be craving the Word of God. You're going to crave the Word of God. The Bible's filled with the basic spiritual food that God provides for His children. We're talking about spiritual food here, of course. The question is, do you have uh, to beg a hungry man to eat? Probably not, right? You're not going to have to beg a hungry man to eat. You know, you're not going to have to give the guy money. If you put food in front of him, he's, he's going to eat it. A hungry man's starving. He needs food. Of course he's not going to... You don't have to beg a hungry man to eat. So the more we seek God's righteousness, the more we're going to want to devour Scripture then, right? Feeding on God's Word, it will actually increase our appetite for it. It's like eating a salt and vinegar chip. You can't eat just one of those things. I love salt and vinegar chips. I'm... And I just need to stay away from those things because if I have one, then I'm gonna I'm likely to finish the whole bag. Those things are delicious. The salt and the vinegar just sit on my tongue and do all kinds of things that make me long for more. Anybody else like that besides me? Okay. Maybe that's the wrong thing. Maybe it's maybe it's a a, a nice piece of Belgian or Swiss chocolate. You know, you put one of those on your tongue, a little piece of it, and and what does it do? It makes you long for more, doesn't it? You're like, ooh, man, that was yummy. Give me more. Well, feeding on God's Word will actually increase our appetite for more of it. <laughs> you get God's Word, you love it, 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 it satisfies us, and you want more of it. Listen to these words from the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 15. Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and a delight of my heart. I hope that's a reality of your life. God's Word is a joy and a delight of your heart. Number 11, you're going to find satisfaction in the things of God. Proverbs 27.7 says this, One who is full loathes honey. As good as honey is, if you're full, you're not going to want it, right? But to one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. <laughs> I mean, the guy who's really hungry, I mean, they're, they're, going to, they're going to take anything you throw at him and give him, right? And so if you seek God's righteousness, you'll find fulfillment and satisfaction even in those things that the unbelievers would call a disaster. Unbelievers might look at you, your neighbors might look at you every, every Sunday you go to church and think, man, they're weird. Why, why does my neighbor go to church? My neighbor's weird. He even goes to church Thursday nights. 
Why? Why? My neighbor reads the Bible. Why? What's the point in that? Your workmates might think you're strange as well. Unbelievers might 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 call these things a disaster. Might, unbeliever might call even chastening and discipline that comes from the Lord as a disaster. But the Bible says that even the the Lord's reproofs, even the Lord's discipline brings satisfaction. Why? Because they're signs of God's love to us. In fact, Hebrews 12, verse 6 says, For whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son whom He receives. So even we as believers, we, we look at this type of thing, the Lord's scourging, His chastening, His discipline, His reproof, and we see that even as a good thing. Are you thankful for everything that God's bringing into your life? Even the affliction? Do you count it all joy? Number 12, you will not make conditions. A person who is poor in spirit, who is repenting of their sin, who is meek, who is thirsting and hungering for righteousness, will not make conditions. They're desperate. (laughs) So if you're a genuine hunger, if you have genuine hunger and thirst, you're not going to make any conditions. Instead, what are you going to do? You're going to seek and and you're going to accept God's righteousness in whatever way He chooses to provide it to you, and then you're going to obey His commands no matter how demanding those commands might be. When the God who gives you this kind of righteousness, who satisfies you, tells you something to do or not do, you're you're not going to say, well, you know, I don't really like that. uh, I'll take that one, but can you get rid of that one? No, you're not going to do that. Allow me to give you a biblical example, okay? <laughs> if you're not getting the point here about making conditions, I'll, I'll give you a biblical example that should help you understand. For example, the rich young ruler one day wanted only the part of God's kingdom that actually fit into his plans and his desires. Remember, the rich young ruler came to Jesus He was unfit for the kingdom. Jesus knew that he thirsted more than other, uh, that that he thirsted more for other things than he did for the things of God and for Jesus. His conditions for God's blessing actually kept him from entering the kingdom of heaven. He wanted to make conditions. You know, he wanted God on his own terms. It doesn't work that way. Jesus made it quite clear. And look what happened after Jesus made that clear. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 18. Here's what it says. And a ruler asked him, that's Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. You see what happened there? The rich young ruler wanted the kingdom of heaven. He wanted to get to heaven. He wanted eternal life. 
But he wanted it on his own terms, and it doesn't work that way, my friend. It never has, and it never will. It's, it's either Jesus or nothing. It's Jesus and his demands and his conditions or nothing. The spiritually hungry do not ask for Christ plus their wealth. It's not Christ plus wealth. It's not Christ and your own personal satisfaction. It's not Jesus Christ plus being popular and famous. It's not Jesus Christ or anything else. It's only Christ. And so if you're spiritually hungry, then you're going to want only Christ and what God provides through Jesus Christ because that's the only thing that's going to satisfy you. That's the only thing that's going to get you to heaven and to eternal life. My friends, may we hunger and thirst for Christ in Christ alone.